Have you ever, uh, have you ever tried to go to like a whiteboard? Um, maybe if you're of a certain age, maybe a chalkboard, right? Or maybe if you're of a, a, a certain other age, just on the wall of the cave, maybe. Uh, but have you ever gone to the board and just freehand tried to draw a really long and yet perfectly straight line? Or maybe a really big yet perfect circle? How's that go for you when you try? If you're like me, not great. I definitely am someone who needs like the clear starting point, clear ending point, and some sort of straight edge, compass, something, or, or it's not going to go great. Uh, it's, it's hard to stay straight because while we look right here, it seems like we're straight and then we step back. And it ain't straight. Sports fields are a great place to do this. I know some of our young people have used these. Have you ever run one of those machines where you're dropping a chalk line for like the first baseline or maybe it's spray paint? When you're in a big open field, if you have to look down at like the machine to operate it, it's impossible to tell that you are straight. If you don't have a string line, you wind up with something that might look like this. I referee some football. I've seen that line before. Or check out this soccer field right here. Right? A decision was made right here though. Right? I don't I don't blame whoever was running those. It's impossible to tell that you're not straight when you're just looking down where you are and boy in some very real ways, life is like that. In some very real ways, the Christian life is like that. If we don't clearly and intentionally define our target, like what we are aiming our life at, and if we don't have something that acts like a straight edge, a string line, so that... I, keep, I can't keep my eye on the target all the time. I, you know what? Sometimes I have to have my feet on the path. If I don't have both the target and the line in my life, I'm going to step back someday and realize how crooked I've been. This faith system of ours, this religion, biblical Christianity, it defines those things for us. And our aim might be different than what's in your brain right now. Our ultimate goal for this life might be different than what you're thinking. Because if you're thinking the aim, the goal, is I want to go to heaven when I die, I want to tell you you're wrong. I'm not saying you're wrong to have that as a goal. But it can't be the target of your life that controls your lifeline. Because we don't get to heaven based on the straightness of our line. We're rescued from the crookedness of our line. We get to heaven based on the straightness of Jesus' line. He was perfect because I can't be. 
and then the punishment I deserve for being a crooked son of a gun. My punishment went on him. And when I believe in that, I get credit for his perfectly straight line. Hallelujah. And if I live my life with my only goal is to go to heaven when I die, I'll have those times where I'm like, well, his line was straight. The target of my life is what we read about in the little call to worship time. Therefore, we live to, what did God say? What did Paul say? Please him. The target of the Christian life is to get my joy, my hope, and my purpose from what glorifies Jesus Christ. From what makes much of the Lord. That's got to be my target. Like Paul said in that verse that we read, that's always going to be my target, whether I'm in this life, even in the next life. We'll have the same goal when we're in heaven that we're supposed to have now. Glorify Him. That's supposed to be our target. And then our straight line, our straight edge, our string line, that's this book. Most of our problems as Christians comes from either having the wrong target or failing to use a straight edge. For us, in this part of the world, in in Christianity out here, usually, I think our problem is more the target than it is the straight edge. And here's what I mean. It's really, really easy to not daily set my sight on the target. I want to glorify Jesus Christ with this day. If we're honest, it's really easy to have a slightly different target. But we still want to use the straight edge because we're good, conservative, Bible-believing Christians. The danger is, it's really easy. It, I mean, it's, it's really possible to walk fairly straight in a bad direction. I can aim my life at some other goal, some lesser thing, some poorer purpose, and be fairly good and moral while I walk in that direction. Isn't that true? I think that's usually more our problem. Maybe in other areas, there are people that within Christendom who really do want to glorify God with their lives, but they fail to let this be the guide to their steps. And before long, they're accept. They, they, when we fall into that trap, what we do is we start using our own heart and our own feelings to tell us what would glorify God or what God would actually like instead of using the straight edge he gave us. I got to have the right target and the right standard or I'm, or I'm going to get out of step. About three months ago in the book of 
1 Samuel, we first met Saul, the guy who would become the first king of Israel. And he started so good. He, he won a great battle. He told everybody, God has saved you. He wanted all the credit to go to God. He started so great. And then Saul, his target got moved. Instead of having a target of, I want God to be glorified in my administration in this kingdom, Saul just wanted to find his joy and his hope in what he could gain and keep for Saul. He wanted people to be impressed with Saul. He wanted people to adore Saul. And he's a great example of the danger. Because at first, when Saul was, his target was just turned a little bit, at first, his missteps didn't seem that bad. It's been a long time since we, since we read those stories. But at first, the way I said it, worded it, was Saul had church too early. Remember that? He decided to have some sacrifices before the prophet Samuel was there. And yeah, he wasn't qualified as a priest, but, but, but sacrifices are good. They're supposed to be done. So let's just do them early. We got to go. And then the next time he like didn't kill enough animals. Remember that? And he let one survivor of the Amalekites survive. He didn't kill enough people. Well, that doesn't seem so bad. See, what was bad was he was just walking toward the wrong target. And the scary thing is, the longer we walk toward the wrong target, the farther we get away from where we had ought to be. You ever have one of those experiences where all of a sudden the bottom drops out, you've made some dumb decision, so whatever has happened, and you go, how, in the, how did I get here? How did this ever happened. This isn't even who I am. The me of three years ago would have never done this. It's because every step toward the wrong target is farther and farther away. That's where we're at with King Saul. Because today he's going to make official policy of the Israeli government, the murder of David. But to him, it makes perfect sense. He's, he's a long ways away from killing too many animals and letting a guy survive when God said that wasn't best. But keep in mind while we read, Saul, Saul's problem is not when he decided to kill David. That's a symptom. The problem started when he changed his target. Let's read our passage today. And then what we're going to zero in on today really isn't about Saul or about David, we're going to look at how people respond to Saul's policy. Saul's, I'll call it the, the David elimination policy of the Israeli government that he's going to institute today. This is, we're going to read all of chapter 19 of the book of 1 Samuel. Verse 1, now Saul told Jonathan, his son, and all his servants to put David to death. But Jonathan, Saul's son, greatly delighted in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father is seeking to put you to death. Now, therefore, please be on your guard in the morning and stay in a secret place and hide yourself. I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I'll speak with my father about you. If I find anything out, I'll tell you. Then Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Do not let the king sin against his servant David since he has not sinned against you, 
and since his deeds have been very beneficial to you. For David took his life in his hand and struck the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great, a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by putting David to death without a cause? Verse 6. Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. And Saul vowed, as the Lord lives, he shall, David shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David. And Jonathan told him all these words. And Jonathan brought David to Saul. And he was in his presence just as he used to be. And when there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and defeated them with great slaughter so that they fled before him. Now then there was that evil spirit from the Lord on Saul. Saul was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the harp with his hand. Because when he played it with his toes, it didn't work as well, I guess. Sorry. Verse 10, Saul tried to pin David to the wall with a spear. But David slipped away out of Saul's presence so that he stuck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Verse 11. Then Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, If you don't save your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be put to death. So Michael let David down through a window, and he went out and fled and escaped. Michael took the household idol and laid it on the bed and put a quilt of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. When Saul's messengers came to take David, Michael said, He is sick. And Saul sent messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me on his bed, so that I may put him to death. When the messengers entered, behold, the household idol was on the bed with the quilt of goat's hair at its head. So Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me like this? And let my enemy go, so that he has escaped. And Michael said to Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I put you to death? Now David fled and escaped and came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed in Naoth. It was told Saul, saying, Behold, David is at Naoth and Ramah. And Saul sent messengers to take David. But when they saw the company of prophets prophesying with Samuel, standing and presiding over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. So he sent messengers the third time, and they also prophesied. Then Saul went to Ramah himself and came as far as the large well that is in Saku. And he asked and said, Hey, where are Samuel and David? And someone said, Behold, they're at Naoth and Ramah. Saul proceeded there to Naoth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also, so that he went along prophesying continually until he got to Naoth and Ramah. And Saul stripped off all of his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, and he laid down naked all that day and all that night. And that's why they say, is Saul also among the prophets? There's our passage. Let's look at the different way that people respond to, to Samuel's, excuse me, to Saul's David elimination policy. It's going to help us see where their life is aimed. And the first group of people I want to look at their response are kind of anonymous. They're definitely anonymous throughout the passage, but I think they're important. And that's all of Saul's men. What have we been told about 
everyone in Saul's administration and in the army and their feelings toward David previously in this book. They all love David. But in this passage, over and over and over, Saul says, you group right there, go kill David. And they go try to kill David. What does that tell us about Saul's men and where they have their life aimed? If their life were aimed at my life, I exist to bring glory to God Almighty. They couldn't do this. I don't think that it's Saul is the ultimate thing in their life. But I think self-preservation might be. Maybe advancement in the military or in the administration. That might be. And this is also a good, quick reminder that what I've been encouraging you about putting the target of your life as whatever, what glorifies Jesus Christ ain't always easy. What do you think Saul might do to some of his men who decide, sorry, king, I'm not going to kill David. God wouldn't like that. It's very reasonable for them to decide, I think I'd rather survive. Has God ever asked for a really high price from any of his people who would serve him? Has God ever glorified himself through people who were put to death? There may not be anything in the world that has promoted our system of faith more than the blood of martyrs. Saul's men refused to take the chance of becoming one. I'm not saying I blame them or judge them. I'm not saying I wouldn't make the same decision. But I am saying it does show where their life is not aimed. Now let's contrast that with Saul's son. Jonathan is the crown prince of Israel. In verse 1, what we, do, what we get is a glimpse inside what we would call a cabinet meeting. Saul speaks to Jonathan, his son, and all of his close servants. That's a cabinet meeting, and he makes this policy. Boys, we're going to kill David. Can you imagine what went on inside of Jonathan at that moment? See, we know Jonathan at this point. We know Jonathan and David have pledged loyalty to one another, even above loyalty to the king, not out of treason and treachery, but because their target is what glorifies God, and they know one another operate that way. It's their own little accountability group. And it's not that Jonathan didn't know his dad's moral compass was a bit off, but I have to believe Jonathan didn't think his dad was that far gone. So Jonathan, we know he will do the courageous thing if the courageous thing is what will bring glory to God. We've seen him do it before already. So he goes and tells David, watch out, buddy. My dad wants to kill you. 
And he's putting the weight of the Israeli government behind that effort. But that's not all Jonathan does. How did Jesus say later, thousand years after this, how did Jesus say we're supposed to handle it if someone that we are close to sins? They're in sin in such a way where it's going to mess up our relationship or it's going to hurt them or we just can't uh, continue the way we are. How are we supposed to handle it with that person? Jesus would say, if your brother sins against you, go to him in private, right? And tell him. It's what Jonathan does. He takes the courageous step of going right to his dad, the king, and saying, Dad, you are wrong to want to kill David. Why would Jonathan do such a scary thing? Because regardless of what it costs him, he wants to glorify God. He wants to see God glorified. That's where he gets his joy. Jonathan decides if it costs me my life, I guess it costs me my life. He tells his dad he's wrong and then he gives him four, uh, four pieces of evidence that supports that. He says, David has never sinned against you. That's one. He says, all of David's actions have actually benefited you, dad. That's two. He says, David has over and over risked his life to benefit this nation and you. That's three. And then fourth, he says, dad, I've seen you rejoice at David's successes. The stuff, David's success that makes you so jealous and angry, when he succeeds, you actually rejoice and now you want to kill him for stuff you used to celebrate. That's wrong. So he says, why then will you sin against innocent blood by putting David to death without a cause? I want you to notice something. Verse 6, Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan and Saul vowed, as, as the Lord lives, he shall never be put to death. And it's not on the screen, but Jonathan goes and gets David, and David comes back to work for a season for Saul. And here's what I want you to notice about that. David is going to be on the run for, both, for the rest of this book from Saul. Because spoiler alert, Saul's going to break his uh, vow here. Okay? But here's what I want you to notice about that. Nothing in this book... None of the schemes and plans to help David survive, none of them work better than the direct confrontation of sin by a godly person who wants to see God glorified. Nothing works better. It doesn't stick. It doesn't work forever, but there's nothing that works better. See, God has decided that he wants David to become king through Saul's murderous threats because he's got stuff he wants to teach the nation and and us right he's still teaching the nation this is what the king you wanted looks like Saul I want to give you the king that you need David so he's still teaching some stuff like that but that's how that's how Saul excuse me that's how Jonathan handled his dad's David elimination policy. Um, and there is unity, and it works. There's repentance until there's more war. David has more success. David gets more adoration from the people. Saul can't handle it. 
And here we go again. Now let's contrast Jonathan with his sister, who is also David's wife. David and Jonathan are brothers-in-law. David last week married the king's daughter, Michael. Uh, In verse 10, not on the screen, but in verse 10, Saul tries to turn David into a human kebab again with the spear. This time, David doesn't stick around to give him another chance. He takes off um, and he runs home. But home's not safe anymore. This is official government policy now. Saul's not sneaking around anymore. Last week, Saul was covertly trying to kill David, always ordering David into harm's way, hoping the Philistines might kill him, right? No more. This is official policy. David runs home. Saul sends some of his henchmen to go get him at his house. Michael, the king's daughter, David's wife, she grew up as the princess, right? She's seen all the faces. She recognized uh, Saul's stormtroopers for what they are. And she immediately tells her husband, "If, if you don't get out of here tonight, you're a dead man in the morning. And she helps him escape. Sounds admirable. That's the right thing to do. Then, She takes the idol that she has. This is a statue of a pagan god. And she tries to use that to buy David some more time. Uh, She does the Ferris Bueller trick, right, if you're about my age, right? Uh, Escape from Alcatraz, whatever you want to use here. Picks the, the little, the statue, puts it in the bed, tries to make it look like David's asleep. Tells the men the next morning, no, 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 he's too sick. You can't come in. They don't want to defy the the direct order of the princess, of the king's daughter, without a direct order from Saul. They get that order from Saul. Saul says, if he's in his bed, bring me the whole bed. I'll kill him right there. When they go in, I want you to notice this. Does the idol help? The idol doesn't do anything. It takes him two seconds. You don't have to be Columbo, right? You don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to tell the difference between a statue and a living person. Right? They go in, they immediately know uh, that's not David. Saul calls his daughter in and he wants to know why have you been loyal to your husband and not to your dad? And look what she says. Why have you deceived me like this and let my enemy go so that he's escaped? And Michael said, he said he would kill me if I didn't help him. Is that true? It's not true. This is a very dangerous lie for David. What can Saul say now? Well, why is he hunting David now? This guy tried to kill my daughter. I know you think he's the hero and he's wonderful, but let me tell you about the real David. He tried to, he not, he tried to kill my daughter, so. What does this tell us about Michael? Does it seem like Michael's sort of on both sides of the fence here? 
Like she's, she's kind of doing the right thing, but maybe, maybe she's got the right target, but is not using uh, the right straight edge. Maybe that's her problem. I really don't think so. I think she's got the wrong target. She wants David to survive. We can tell that. Why? Probably because she'd like to be the wife of the king someday. That she's tied, her well-being in many ways is tied to that of her husband. So his survival and advancement is good for me. And that all sounds great until the point where she's face-to-face with her dad, the real king. And if he's willing to kill David, he's probably willing to kill people who help David, which means he might be willing to kill me. And suddenly, she's ready to throw David under the bus because the target of Michael's life is not what glorifies God, It's probably what glorifies Michael. She had the chance to be just like her brother. What if first she never had the idol in her house? Which, by the way, it's there because I know we serve this one God, but if these other pagan gods will help give me what I want, why wouldn't I ask? That's a clue that her target's in the wrong spot. But what if she had just said, I order you and I'm the da, I'm the princess around here, you can't come in the room. Buys David the same amount of time, it's already the next morning anyway. And what if when she was in front of her dad, she said, Dad, you can kill me if you want to, but killing David is wrong. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's important to have the right target. Now, the last person, and I use that term loosely, and I want to examine uh, the response to Saul's plot to kill David is just God himself. There's this really goofy thing at the end of this passage where David, after he flees his house... I think he flees, maybe I'll go to the only place maybe King Saul won't attack. If I can find Samuel, maybe Saul will respect Samuel and he won't come for me there. He's wrong, but maybe that's what he thinks. David goes and finds uh, the old prophet Samuel. We haven't seen him in quite some time. He's still alive. Samuel has some other prophets prophesying there with him. What that means is they're getting, they're getting words straight from God and they are proclaiming what God wants them to proclaim. That's what's happening. Saul has sent more of the Gestapo to go find David and they find out that he is with Samuel. And a funny thing happens. There's as Saul's troops get close to where David and Samuel and these other prophets are prophesying, we're told they start prophesying and they very obviously can't do what they were sent to do. I don't know exactly what this looked like. Here's what I do know. God somehow superimposed his will onto them. Um, I know what they came there to do was take custody of and arrest David, but God took custody of and arrested them. 
And suddenly, no matter what, they came to say, you are under arrest and read the Miranda warnings or whatever to David, whatever they did in those days. But they just start proclaiming something God wants them to say. I don't know what it was. I imagine it's something like this. David, you are under arrest. <laughs> David, you're the real king. It's not Saul. I wasn't supposed to say that. Saul's been rejected. He's not the real king. Right? And they, they can't do what they've been sent there to do. So Saul sends another group. Same thing. God arrests them. Saul sends another group. God arrests them. Then Saul decides about verse 22. Uh, you know, if you're, it's hard to find good help these days. If you're going to do, get something done right, you'd better do it yourself. So Saul goes down there, asks for directions, finds out where David and Samuel are. He goes in and the same thing happens to Saul again in my mind's eye. I just see the murderous rage on his face and he just starts saying things like, I have been rejected and you're actually the real king. The target of my life is where it should have been and I've been rejected by God. There's nothing I can do about it. And then verse 24, he also stripped off all of his clothes and lay down naked all that day and that night. Well, that seems interesting. <laughs> Prophecies when God gives someone a, a message and they have to proclaim it. It used to happen. Uh, we have his message right here now. But you see the message God makes Saul proclaim? God just didn't want Saul humiliated, though he did humiliate him. God makes Saul demonstrate what God has already decided about Saul. Why don't you get those robes and vestiges off? Because you've been re you're, you're not the real king. You've been rejected as king. And he makes him take off all the stuff that identifies him as king. All that stuff Saul has aimed his life at keeping when he meets the holy God. It's all ripped away and he's left naked, powerless, and alone. That story is why people say about Saul from then on is Saul also among the prophets. Second time something like this has happened to Saul. Once was kind of a good thing, now is a bad thing. And this becomes kind of a, a, a way to, I think, make fun of Saul. Is Saul one of the prophets? Well, not intentionally. He's not. That's our passage. What do we take home from this? What are we supposed to learn uh, from a passage uh, like this? I mean, we're not going to find ourselves probably in front of a king that wants to kill us. We're probably not going to be on the run. But I grabbed five things out of this passage that I think it teaches. First, we can probably see this on every page of the scriptures. This passage reminds us God will keep 
his promises. David is going to survive every one of Saul's attempts to kill him. Why? Because David's so crafty and so good at at getting away. He's a master of camouflage. Is that why? Why does David survive? Because God's got promises to keep. God promised David is going to be king and dead guys don't make very good kings. It's sort of a rule. Now what's cool about this, and I'll kind of step on number four here. God protects those and that are his in a myriad ways. In today's passage, and you can keep an eye on this as we go through the rest of the book, the ways God keeps his promises are, are myriad. Jonathan, excuse me, Saul decides to kill David, makes it official policy. God uses a man of integrity named Jonathan who is willing to stand up and say, this is wrong. You can kill me if you want to, but it's wrong and you shouldn't do this. God uses that to save David. But God's not limited by the way people respond and where we have our lives aimed. Jonathan's sister refuses to be like that. God still uses Michael to help keep his promise to save David. When all else fails, God intervenes miraculously to save David. God is going to keep his promises, but he can do that in innumerable ways. It's hard for us to see coming. We can't even always tell he's doing it while he's doing it. Which brings us to number two. In some very real ways, we get to decide how we will participate with God while God keeps the promises God is going to keep. In this story, David was going to survive. So David and all the people around Saul, they get to decide, what side am I going to be on while God keeps his promises? David's going to survive no matter what anyone does. But they are going to be responsible for what they do while God keeps his promises. That's still true for us. God is going to keep every one of God's promises. He hasn't broken one yet. He's not going to start anytime soon. For us, God promised, I will build my church. The powers of hell will not overcome it. God promised to give you and me, to give each one of us everything we need to glorify Him. Those are sure promises. God's going to keep those promises. We get to decide how we participate while God keeps those promises. That's why I say all the time to encourage us to stay about the work. God is going to build his church, but he is under no obligation to do it here. We get to decide if we want to participate with the God of the universe while he does the awesome things that glorify himself. And we get to decide if we ain't got time for that. From this past, 
passage, I'm thinking of Michael here. Uh, Paul warned against this in number three. It's why it's in quotes. Paul talked in the book of Romans about doing evil that good may come. Never a great idea. I'm sure Michael, in her mind, decided using the idol, lying to her dad, whatever it was. I know these things aren't great. Under normal circumstances, this wouldn't be best. But in the long run, in the long run, eventually, this will be what's best. You ever, ever been there? <laughs> or it's just me. You ever said or thought or, or acted like you thought things like this? You know, I'm just not going to get where I want to go in my career or in my finances unless I and fill in the blank with something that God would say ain't great. I'm never going to advance in, in my sport. My kid is not going to advance in his or her sport unless we fill in the blank with something God says isn't his best. How about this one? My kids are going to make life miserable unless I allow them to. I, I know this is, this is easy preaching, hard living. Setting our target on what glorifies God is like that. It, it, it's hard. I will encourage you this though. Once you become that person, once you become that person publicly and you find yourself saying things like, hey, you know what? I, I love you, but I can't because, you know, I just, this sounds so like super self-righteous or whatever, but I just, I'm trying to aim my life at what God says is best. I don't think that's best. And so I can't. Once you find yourself being the man, the woman who says stuff like that, before long, people will get it. It will get easier. What's hard is, paying, is trying to keep a foot on each line. The one that glorifies God and the one that's pointed somewhere else. I mentioned this one already. Number four, God, God protects those who are his in myriad ways. David was under God's protection. He's going to survive. But boy, Wait till you see what David has to survive in order to survive. That God, that David is under God's protection does not mean David won't be scared out of his mind. That he won't write psalms that says stuff like, why have you forsaken me? Sometimes the proof that God is protecting you is not that your circumstances are better. It's that you are still there fighting in those circumstances. And we can't tell how God is protecting us. We can't. But he is. And finally, number five really is just the main... Number, the first four just motivate us to do five. Remembering all that stuff just helps motivate us to, to set getting our joy and our hope 
on what glorifies Jesus Christ. While we're sitting in here, it makes sense like, oh yeah, that's what I want to be the aim of my life, right? How do we, how do we motivate ourselves to do that like two weeks from Tuesday when the pressure's on? Here's how we motivate ourselves to keep our eye on that target every day. First, God is going to keep his promises and his promises are better. I get to decide how I participate when God keeps his promises. Doing evil, taking that, that false step off of this, this path is never going to be in the long run a good idea. It's always going to be something I look back on and regret at some point. And I know I am being protected and held fast by the God of the universe. Why would I want to be anywhere else? And then when we get that target, set on what glorifies him, we use our straight edge to, to, to watch our steps. Then more and more and more we can realize when our target's there, it's like, oh yeah. The stuff I think that's making me miserable the stuff I really feel like I can't be happy unless that person, uh, I can't be, I can't have peace unless I'm out of, and I can't have happiness unless this other thing happens. If my target is what glorifies God, and he's already promised, I will give you what you need to glorify me. Maybe like he wanted David to walk through the murderous threats of the constant threat of death. Maybe he wants me to glorify him by the way I respond to these circumstances he's allowed me to walk through. But I'll, I can only do that if my target is set and my path is straight. What are you aimed at this morning, church? May we encourage one another to take careful aim. May we continue to learn what our straight edge says. But always keep in mind, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how straight my path is. Well, I don't do this. I don't do that. I haven't said a bad word in three days, right? If I'm not aimed at the right target, ultimately, there's a lot of moral cult members where we aimed, then let's watch our steps. Let's do it together. Pray with me and we'll close. Our Father and our God, we're so thankful that you have preserved the book of 1 Samuel, uh, the life of David and Saul and Jonathan. And um, God, thank you for the reminder that, of how we should aim our life at what glorifies you. We want our line to be straight. We want our lives to have meant something. And ultimately we know if we aim our life at anything besides what glorifies you, eventually we're going to be stripped of all that stuff and we are going to lay naked before the one we should have been serving all along. God, make us Jonathans and not Saul's. Help us have the integrity and the guts and the courage to aim our lives unashamedly at you and then watch our steps along the path, come what may. 
And that's a lot easier to do as a group than as individuals. So tie us to one another that we might do this. Not so people think we are better, so that people know you are. We love you, Lord. Thanks for saving us from our crookedness. In Jesus' name, amen. Just stand and we'll finish.